Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop Season 2, The Presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. 103 years ago this week, President Woodrow Wilson held the first on-the-record presidential press conference. It was a mistake. Every president since then has probably felt this way, after having to stand and take it with a smile as dim-witted reporters fussed about irrelevancies and poked their sides with dull sticks. How did this mistake happen and come to be a permanent part of our democracy? And why can't someone fix it? On March 15, 1913, President Woodrow Wilson's private secretary, Joseph Tumulty, advised newspaper men in Washington that at 1245, the governor, he still called Wilson by his former title, would look them in the face and chat with them for a few minutes. It was 11 days into the Wilson administration. The inauguration was held on the 4th of March back then. President Wilson had come into office with the promise of reform. He was considered cold and aloof. One reporter said shaking his hand was like shaking a dead fish. This, of course, apparently reporters back then shook dead fish regularly, and this was a metaphor easily at hand. This, of course, was a great contrast to candidate Teddy Roosevelt, who was one vigorous man of action, backslapping and more at home in a boxing ring than the halls of academia. Wilson had crisscrossed the country, though, as a candidate promising a new freedom designed to help with what he called the man on the make, not the man who had already made it. This was a middle-class man who aspired to the property of the business-owning class. By the summer of 1912, Wilson had carved out a solid center of people who wanted change, and he was doing it on behalf of and in the name of the people. The new president, coming into his office, expected to greet each man from the newspapers one by one to begin a personal relationship of the kind that he'd had with reporters in New Jersey. Up to that point in the White House history, presidents had either ignored the press or fed them little news in little small private off-the-record meetings. As David Greenberg writes in The Republic of Spin, Teddy Roosevelt started the changes that we find familiar today. Roosevelt decided that the news columns were as important as, or more important than, the opinion columns. Roosevelt spoke to reporters while his barber gave him his morning shave, though those conversations are were what we'd call today on background, which is to say conversations that could be uh, quoted but not attributed to any specific White House official or not name a named White House official and certainly not naming him the president. Roosevelt is credited with inventing the leak, a topic very much in the news today, as this President Trump has deployed his press secretary to plumb the leaks and to rage against anonymous sources, while at the same time this president has spoken off the record as an unattributed source. Roosevelt was an innovator in the inside game of managing the press with leaks and backgrounding, but he was also attuned to the public act of the presidency and using the public relations show to make his point. He'd taken reporters into battle with him, after all. As president, he went into the into a submarine and descended into the bottom of Long Island Sound in an effort to show uh, support for the new ships. On another occasion, he rode 98 miles on horseback to prove the reasonableness of new army regulations. His publicity stunts served a purpose, but the public displays also made him seem like a bit of a circus performer. And Woodrow Wilson, once an admirer, came to regard Teddy Roosevelt as, quote, the monumental faker of history. When Wilson met on that day, 103 years ago, he was expecting a small number of reporters, like a dozen or so, with whom he could exchange 
casual information, but at the appointed hour, 125 newsmen appeared in Wilson's office. He didn't know what to do. They stood there in their sack coats and their vests in a semicircle, four deep, waiting for the new man to start pushing around some words. I did not realize there were so many of you, said Wilson, after a startled moment and an awkward pause. It wasn't just that he was new to the job. At the time, the White House press room itself was barely bigger than the lavatory across the hall, so it wasn't crazy to be surprised at the sheer number of warm bodies crowding into the room. Your numbers force me to make a speech to you en masse instead of chatting with each of you as I had hoped to do, said the president, and thus getting greater pleasure and personal acquaintance out of this meeting. Here's how the New York Times reported on this awkward moment in the March 16th copy of the newspaper. The president did not know what he was up against. In Trenton, when the newspaper men came in, there were never more than a dozen, and sometimes not more than half a dozen. He had expected that some 20 or 30 men might come in and that he would have a chance to chat freely and unconversationally. When he took his place at his desk and saw 125 newspaper men stream in, or about half the newspaper correspondents of Washington, the president's amazement was written on his face. A series of chats was impossible. Now, this is being covered like it. this chance exchange was a turning point in history. And in fact, it was uh, because this just wasn't the way presidents interacted with the press. The speech en masse, as Wilson put it, became a regular feature of his administration. And 103 years later, the White House press conference has retained the shape of that first meeting. Awkward, impersonal and with little pleasure for the president. The moment that day legitimized the press corps and put the president and the press in an extended clutch, entwined and angling for advantage. McKinley had let them in the place. Roosevelt had given them their own spot in the White House. But what Wilson did with the press conference was give them a certain kind of legitimacy. He gave them something presidents could not take back by giving reporters a role in the process. And we'll see more of that in this account. The role that he's giving them. Now, this was not, of course, Wilson's alone to give. He needed the press to help him do his work. In David Greenberg's The Republic of Spin, he makes the case that, quote, the emergence of a strong presidency in the 20th century brought with it an increasing need for presidents to master the arts of public persuasion in order to promote their policies and themselves. Public press conferences of the kind this was the first of would become a crucial part in that process. David Michael Reif in a book called Presidents and Culture, argues that Wilson's press conferences grew out of the progressive era and the view in the progressive era era of how public questions could be solved. The progressive era being that period between 1880 and 1920 when the nation and its institutions, churches, the press, women's groups, government, responded to dramatic industrial and social change. So you had muckrakers in the magazines exposing business and politics, that scientific methods were being applied to social life in the search for its truths. And the idea was that these revelations through science, through inquiry, could change public opinion and behavior could be molded and shaped through revelation, created through you know, sober scientific or investigative inquiry. That's why Greenberg describes the progressive President Roosevelt this way. He, quote, made it his mission to enlist the citizenry behind his policy goals, turning the presidency into the engine of social reform. So if public life in the progressive era educates people to inform them, 
and change public opinion to therefore make things better, then what better thing to do as a president than to use the power of your office and your capacity for leadership to join in this big public effort to spread good, reasonable conclusions throughout the land in order to improve the life of the citizenry. Publicity in this context, then, is about explaining. And that's where I want to make one of those clumsy stopping moments here and proclaim this. There are two reasons I'm drawn to the story. One is that it's part of the history of uh, presidents and public opinion, how they shape it, how they interact with it, and how they build channels to that public opinion. But it also helps me paw around in this question. What is the presidency for? <laughs> is it is a job? Uh, is is it a job to be a booster for ideas, a diviner of the public mood, a seller of pre-cooked ideas to the public through pretty words and frothy phrases? I, at the moment, am lamenting the death of explanation, the fact that uh, it is no longer seen as a crucial role of either candidates or lawmakers to explain what they're doing. Shouldn't a president explain what he's about to do on behalf of the people who elected him? Why do I think that? Well, because it gives people control. Explaining something gives people a sense of what's coming. They are in a country where reason, as embodied in the sturdy presidential explaining of things, means that they're not going to be subject to unpredictable forces. Or if people are going to be subject to unpredictable forces, that they can be given a heads up ahead of time and given a clear explanation of what is ahead. For example, what duty does the president have to tell people whose health care is going to change that that's going to happen to them as a way of either just cluing them in so they can make choices or making them at least feel if things are going to change, it's not by capricious, crazy chaos, but that there's a trade-off or there's a reason or there's been some thought put into this. And or finally, that they're not getting screwed as a result of the benefits going to somebody else who just had a better lobbyist. The public relations show, uh, as Roosevelt and Wilson conceived it, had a purpose and made an appeal to the reasoning mind. Today, the question is whether the progressive era's faith in the reasoning citizen has been completely replaced with a different model of the presidency. A president makes no effort to explain, but simply to assert as a way of creating a bandwagon of support. So basically, assertion has taken over explanation. When you hear the president speak, is he explaining why he's doing what he's doing? Or is he just asserting it and using that to rally his people for political power to get the thing passed? The progressive idea was that for the president to shape public will, which was being distorted by elites, by those elites in business, and so use the public will as an engine for collective purpose. Now, we can only nuzzle up against the idea of against this other idea, which is basically everything that I've just said is not good, which is to say, and we'll return to this later with Wilson and other presidents. But it's essentially this question. Is it a good thing to have increased communication as a part of the presidential role, the growth of what Jeffrey Tullis calls the rhetorical presidency? If the founders worried about presidents as demagogues, then elevating the rhetorical skill or sorry, the oratorical or rhetorical skill and or of the president is not a great thing. So I may think explaining is a key presidential function, and I sort of do at this point, but maybe that puts too much emphasis on the ability to speak as president. And maybe what Wilson was doing in the growth of the rhetorical president set up the conditions to allow for a demagogue by creating a situation in which the proper functioning of the presidential machine relied on a good speaker, because that meant the machine was more vulnerable than ever, or I should say more vulnerable at least than the founders would have liked, because it meant that, that the way you make the machine 
you're basically saying that the machine can only work if it relies on this volatile mixture, something that when used well, which is to say the rhetorical power, when it's used well, it can be really powerful. And that's great. And the vision of the presidency is strengthened and the man in the office is made better. But the rhetorical skill and depending on it also means you're depending on something that can be easily used by the demagogue. So you are making the machine go by using an incredibly volatile fuel. As Tullis puts it much more simply, there's a willingness to risk demagoguery for the chance to have a stronger presidency. And in later chapters or episodes of this, we'll get into what that means, stronger presidency, stronger in terms of the battle against the other branches, stronger in terms of affecting quick action hero uh, policies, which feeds a public need, but might not be good for public policy. Anyway, it was an auspicious day, though, that first press conference meeting. This is actually what a honeymoon looks like for a president. We haven't had one for the current occupant, but Wilson sure did get a honeymoon. The New York Times headline was this. Wilson wins newspapermen. Amazed to have 125 call, he makes a hit with his frank talk. The New York Times piece gushes from start to finish about how much the newspapermen loved Wilson and how Wilson very much indeed seemed to like them too. Here's more from the Times. As he went on talking, the big hit he was making with the crowd became evident. There was something so unaffected and honest about his way of talking under this unexpected call on him that it won everybody, despite the fact that many of the men there had come prejudiced against him. More from the Times. He told of some of the difficulties of his administration, of the fact that when big problems were presented to him, he often got, quote, a few threads and not the whole pattern, and hence could not see newspaper men about them until he got a better hold on the situation. The frank way in which he explained his difficulties gave the men who were seeing him for the first time an entirely new line on him. From that, he went on to talk with the utmost freedom about it. an impression which has been spread all over the country to the effect that he was prejudiced against newspaper men. It was due, he conceded, to the way in which he had denied a number of newspaper stories. But he said that those denials should be taken as referring only to those particular stories, and not as indicating any general distrust or dislike of newspapers. He said he felt highly honored to be a member of the National Press Club which he has joined since he came to Washington, and he paid a high tribute to the fine fellows who had been his newspaper associates at Trenton and during his administration. Referring to the fact that this was the first time that he had a chance to see the newspaper man, he said that he wanted it understood that there were no doors in his office and that he was always willing and ready to see them. So here you have a president saying, I may have denied some of your individual stories, but let's not think that that I'm saying as a, as a profession, as a group of men, as humans collected in a professional endeavor, that I think that you are somehow despicable or dishonest or somehow bad for the American story. He bent over backwards, indeed, to make the opposite case. And now the Times concluding on the end of this pleasant interlude in the day. Then the president shook hands with all the newspaper correspondents and reiterated to each the expressions he had made in his speech. It was evident that he had revised his opinion of newspapers. In fact, he expressed himself as touched and grateful over the treatment the newspapers had given him since his inauguration. I don't suppose anyone who has entered this office has been as generously treated as I have been, he said, more generously than I deserve. The Washington Post, not to be outdone, had a headline of the meeting that read, Wilson, in friendly chat, says he likes reporters. 
if you think that reporters have, are self-obsessed and covering only their own business now, this is not a modern event. This is a long and deep tradition among the reporters of America that they are obsessed with the way they are treated by the president. The Post correspondent went wobbly, in fact, in covering his first meeting with the president in a public setting, concluding the first paragraph of his dispatch by describing Wilson this way. Standing there where he could take in all with a sweep of his kindly eyes and with a genial smile. Let's read that last sentence again. The Post reporter says, standing there where he could take in all with a sweep of his kindly eyes and with a genial smile. This is the vicious Washington Post, writing like it's tiger beat. There was, however, no report of any nuzzling. At that first meeting, Wilson did not do much more than blink those kindly eyes and tell the assembled men that he was fond of them and sorry he hadn't visited sooner and that he was trying to get onto his job. Despite the fact that we've devoted an entire episode to this, it should be noted that the White House usher didn't even note that this event took place in the official notebook. The press conference is, is also just one of the innovations that Woodrow Wilson brought into the office. In April, he would revive for the first time in a century the joint address to Congress, in-person delivery of the State of the Union address. Here's how the New York Times covered that, since our current president has just given a joint address. New York Times said that the president explains he wishes to be known as a person rather than merely an arm of the government. Here we see the personal presidency becoming a part of our politics in a way that it had not before. The other subhead of the New York Times story reads, House galleries are packed to hear president's oral message. Can you imagine today making a distinction in a newspaper headline that the message was oral? Here's the Times in a more colorful way of describing it. For the first time, this is the president, by the way, this is again, the president's address to Congress in person. And this is why it was such a big deal. Again, the first press conference, and now the first address to Congress again, the president, the personal president, coming and doing the communicating himself. Here goes the Times. For the first time within the life of any person now alive, unless it be true that there are persons living who are more than 112 years old, a president of the United States today appeared before the two houses of Congress, assembled in joint session, and in person gave them a, quote, information of the State of the Union, unquote, and recommended to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient as required by the federal Constitution. And here's a little bit of Wilson, what Wilson said. We don't have a recording of it, but here is uh, here is the president. I'm very glad indeed to have this opportunity to address the two houses directly and to verify for myself the impression that the president of the United States is a person, not a mere department of the government hailing Congress from some isolated island of jealous power, sending messages, not speaking naturally and with his own voice, that he is a human being trying to cooperate with other human beings in a common service, that this pleasant experience I shall feel quite normal in all our dealings with one another. So you see, the president is not just trying to develop personal relationships with reporters. He's trying to develop personal relationships with the Congress. The personal is the presidential. And this is the president asserting a new power of control over his role in office, a more personal kind of control, asserting more participation in the governmental exercise. Why was it so important that the president have a good relationship with reporters? And why was it mentioned so much in those early accounts? Well, self-obsession by reporters, of course. But also, the idea of the president getting his message out was important. But it also, there's, I guess the reason I'm interested in it in part is because it was the beginning. At the birth of the press conference, you also have the birth of the disconnect between the way the president and the public saw their roles. So the president was trying to do this progressive era idea of shaping public will. 
But the newspaper guys cared about news and profit, not the not the elucidation of public questions of the kind that, that Wilson believed in. And here's how Walter Lippmann described the disconnect. Quote, news and truth are not the same thing. The function of the news is to signalize an event. The function of the truth is to bring to light hidden facts and to make a picture of reality on which men can act. That meant there was always going to be a push and a pull between news instincts of the press guys and the administration's truth instinct, which was to say to try to illuminate truths that would then be the basis upon which either action could be taken or justification for the president's actions would seem self-evident once these truths were illuminated from beneath the black cape which had obscured them. This leaves aside, of course, the notion of what truth actually means, which is still an open question today. But at the birth of the press conference, you see a way in which we're not even getting to the truth because the two different parties have two different views of what they're there for. And this, of course, this disconnect would be on display a week later on March 22nd, which was Wilson's second press conference. But this time it was a formal one, not just a kind of happenstance occurrence in the president's office. The president came prepared in this in this case on the 22nd, apologizing for the for the raggedness of the first encounter. He said he wanted to build a working relationship with the 128 men who attended. Please do not tell the country, said the president, what Washington is thinking, for that does not make any difference. Tell Washington what the country's thinking. He asked reporters to, quote, lend me your assistance as nobody else can to bring the freight of opinion into Washington to try and make true gold here that will go out from Washington. The reporters were baffled, wrote one. Our function, at least as we saw it, leaving aside our duty, was to inform the country what Washington was doing. This is the New York Times Washington bureau chief, Richard Ulihan. Uh, he wrote this later. And the president, he said, quote, had come to Washington with a distinct prejudice against the place and what he conceived to be its mental atmosphere. Olihan later wrote of the president's request of them, of course, it was impossible for us to follow that formula, his formula, Wilson's formula, where the press plays this role of bringing public opinion to Washington from the rest of the country. I mean, basically, the modern press conference started off very much on the wrong foot. Wilson, the former political science professor, had a specific notion of how the president operated in a democratic system. He didn't want the press to broadcast his views. As historian David Michael Reif explains, Wilson thought the president should be a conduit for public opinion. He would not follow the mob, but he also couldn't lead the country in a direction it didn't want to go. A nation is an organic thing, wrote Wilson. Its will dwells with those who do practical thinking and organize the best concert of action, those who hit upon opinions fit to be made prevalent and who have the capacity to make them so. So here's an idea. Politicians who do the practical thinking, they pick and choose among the opinions fit to be made prevalent. So today, no one would admit that that's the job for fear of being accused of being an elitist, right? You're all in politics supposed to to just say all wisdom derives from the people and politicians are not going to ignore anything they think. They're simply going to act as the wise public thinks. Now, that's, of course, when the wise public thinks the way you do. When the wise public doesn't think in the way you do, then you either ignore the wise public or you say that the pollsters are wrong. A bit of a detour here. There's a great book out now called The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. And, well, Wilson, of course, is the first egghead president. I don't know if he's the first, but he certainly is the first political scientist president. Yes, okay, Jefferson. Um, He's the first political scientist president named Woodrow Wilson. And as an egghead, we basically 
see his election as the birth of expertise, not the death of expertise, which Nichols writes about now, but the birth of expertise. And here's a Christian Science Monitor clip that puts it that way. Until now, the American nation has distrusted the scholar in politics as a theorist and indeed has distrusted the expert or professional everywhere. Americans have preferred the man with faculty or gumption who could turn his hand to anything. But as the national need has changed with changing conditions of a thousand sorts, the expert has come to his own. So, back to our story. Wilson's concept of public opinion was a version of an idea that Abraham Lincoln believed in. Lincoln took walks that he called public opinion baths to learn the public mood so that he could shape it into policy. But he was relentlessly ridiculed, of course, about his reluctance to act, which is kind of funny given all the acting he did do. But this was a result of his belief that the public could not be forced in a radical new direction. FDR also famously said, I cannot go any faster than the people will let me. Wilson's notion was was less limited than Lincoln's, though. His vision made him the author of public opinion in a much more active way than Lincoln. As President Wilson would curate public opinion and then work with Congress to enact public will. But in order to have a sense of public opinion and tweeze out those views, quote, fit to be made prevalent, unquote, he needed reporters to send out the fishing nets to collect as much information as possible. Reporters obviously didn't see it things that way. And that's because their professional code said they were the collector of facts and they presented an event and that was it. They, that was sort of Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. And then there were the other reporters who were sensationalists and they weren't there to be doing anything other than tell good dramatic stories with lots of Kung Fu fights and, and uh, F-35 airplanes, which didn't exist at the time, but uh, made for an awfully good story. Uh, but neither was involved in the social will shaping that Wilson was talking about. If Woodrow Wilson helped kick off the modern presidency, his first press conference can have all manner of significance stuffed into it. And we're not going to go overboard by trying to stuff too much meaning into this one little event. But because we've got other events in the Wilson presidency, we'll get back to. But what I'm putting a toe into here is simply this tension between the office of the presidency and the men who cover it. And today, the men and women who cover it. It was flawed from the start. Wilson saw it as a partnership, the press as something else. And that misconception about the communication has continued. Today, it's gotten even more warped in terms of the way we see and evaluate presidents. Today, we have sort of an action hero vision of the president. The president, presidential re- rhetoric amplified through the media is not a tool to divine and channel public opinion, but to move it. So a president is conceived as someone who speaks and all obstacles before him melt, of course, if he's speaking well enough. So President Obama's fans wished through much of his presidency that he could give a great speech like the ones he gave during the campaign so that he could enact a true liberal agenda. And the obstacle to the liberal agenda was simply that he just wasn't giving the right kind of speech. Republicans during the Obama years argued that the president should lead by speaking to the country about the dire state of the country's finances. And once he did that, people would fall in line between the right policies, which in the Republicans' case meant getting the country behind cutting entitlement programs that they loved and which they thought the president could help the country understand, too. Presidential power is not the power to persuade, writes uh, Professor George Edwards, who like many, resists this notion of the action hero rhetorical president. Presidents cannot reshape the contours of the political landscape to pave the way for change by establishing an agenda and persuading the public, Congress, and others to support their policies. Instead, successful presidents facilitate change by recognizing opportunities in their environments and fashioning strategies and tactics to exploit them. So that concept... 
Edwards's concept is much closer to Wilson and what he was on about than our modern action hero rhetorical power of the presidency. These limitations on the presidency are why Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton, who were both great communicators, left the office complaining that they wished they had been able to find the right message to move the public faster and farther. President Trump follows in this line when recently he gave himself a C plus in messaging in an interview about when talking about his first month in office. The problems all presidents learn and that President Trump is learning, although he still thinks it can be overcome, which is yet an, another hard lesson he will learn. The, the, the lesson they all learn is that it's hard to know what public opinion is. The public doesn't really know what it believes much of the time or public or the public is misinformed. And for an academic like Wilson, more data was better than less, which is why he was so anxious to enlist reporters as fact finders, not not to use them particularly as his personal meg megaphone. But in so doing, he was engaging in a familiar part of this presidential exercise that we'll examine in, in future episodes, which was in the office focused on this notion of communication. He was trying to develop channels, build channels from himself out to the public. In setting up the White House press conferences, Wilson was asking for a trade. He would let reporters in, giving them access and standing, and then they would play the role he wanted. But of course, <laughs> they, like, they came in, but not to play his role. The next few years would be bumpy for the official presidential press conference with Wilson. In July 1913, Wilson threatened to stop them altogether when the New York Sun published comments on Mexico that were supposed to be off the record. Afterward, all comments were considered off the record unless the White House said otherwise, which essentially recreated the arrangement that had existed before the first, first formal press conference. As war loomed in 1915, Wilson halted the press conferences for a year, and his view of the press grew colder. At one point, in arguing for legal limits on press coverage... He said, I do not think that the newspapers of the country have the right to embarrass their own country in the settlement of matters which have to be handled with delicacy and candor. The press did not oblige, but Wilson still tried to carry out his experiment in other methods. As W. Dale Nelson reports in his book on the history of the White House press secretary, Wilson relied on his private secretary, Tumulty, to report on the public mood. Said Wilson, I'm happy to have Tumulty a good deal away to pick up opinion, which he does wonderfully well. Washington is no place to learn what the country is thinking about. So there you see Wilson trying another of these efforts to build channels back to the country if the press isn't going to be his conduit. Future presidents would continue the battle, but Wilson had ceded an, a crucial beachhead to the press. Every president after felt compelled to hold press conferences, said Senate historian Donald Ritchie, who wrote a great book on the history of the Washington Press Corps. He treated the reporters as professionals and gave them legitimacy. Working reporters hadn't even had their own room in the White House until Teddy Roosevelt. Now they had a right to ask the president questions as a part of their regular functioning of their office, and this access would ultimately doom Wilson's view of reporters. If a reporter could ask a question on a regular basis, then reporters would set the agenda and fit Wilson's answer into whatever they decided was important. Those decisions were informed by the very cynical and commercial interests Wilson had loathed. Wilson hated the idea and very soon invented a crucial new presidential tool to get around these press conferences, And that was the public stonewall. Rife in his, the presidential historian, uh, uh, studied 630 of Wilson's press conference answers and found that 67% of them were unresponsive, uninformative, or cursory. A reporter at the time said the object of Wilson's press conferences was, quote, to make responses which seemed to answer the questions, but which imparted little or nothing in the way of information. 
This was just one of the ways in which Wilson felt hemmed in by the job that he had conceived very differently as a political science professor. As a political science professor, Woodrow Wilson had written that a president, quote, is at liberty both in law and conscience to be as big a man as he can. Well, he wrote that line before he had actually set foot into the Oval Office. It is this notion that a president has a power that you simply just have to use well, and it's all there for you. But once he actually started serving, he quickly learned about the limits of his power. And this is how he then described one of the institutions that put uh, those limitations on his power and then kept him from being a big a man as he can. He wrote, Quote, a little group of willful men, representing no opinion but their own, have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. He was, in that case, talking about members of the Senate. So it turns out a president cannot be as big a man as he can, and constraining him as the Senate, and constraining him as those damn reporters who care more about selling their papers than engaging with me in a joint operation of, of cooperation to help the public through the shaping and molding of public will. Almost 20 years to the day after Wilson's first press conference, FDR would give his first fireside chat. It was an attempt to regain the agenda by speaking directly to the American people without the press filter. President Obama obviously tried that many times with Google Hangouts, talking on ESPN. President Trump tried the same thing with Twitter to get around the news. It's working. It's also not working. One of the reasons that President Trump has been frustrated is that while he thinks he has hit upon a new and super efficient way to communicate, there is still the engine of the press out there picking different topics to discuss elevating irritating shortcomings of his administration and questioning his view of things. At a recent press conference, he excoriated the press for focusing on the negative stories and not the positive ones. The press is not engaged in the project that he would like them to be engaged in, in a similar way that Wilson learned that the press would not go along with the project that he had outlined for them and for which he thought they should be grateful since he was giving them the access. President Trump said this is when he spoke about the press, suggested it was a unique situation. But of course, it's a very familiar complaint for presidents going all the way back 100 years or more, 60 years after the first press conference and 40 years before the Trump presidency. Another president would complain at a press conference that the press was not doing its job in the arrangement and was being overly critical. I have never heard or seen such outrageous vicious, distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. I'm not blaming anybody for that. Perhaps what happened is that what we did uh, brought it about, and therefore uh, the media decided that they would have to uh, take that particular line. But when people are pounded night after night uh, with that kind of frantic, hysterical reporting, it naturally shakes their confidence. And yet, don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. <laughs> you see, I can't have that impression. <laughs> you see, one can only be angry with those he respects. And now, 40 years after Nixon, President Trump, much fresher to the position than Nixon, has called the press the enemy of the people. We're a long way off from that meeting 104 years ago, and the description from the newspaper men of the president's kindly eyes, though no doubt that kind of coverage would suit the current occupant of the Oval Office just fine. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestop.com 
at Slate.com. And or leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And our current chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who I would invite to any press conference on the record or off. Thanks also to Izzy Road for joining me in the reading of these mountains of clips so that I can stay on top of this and not go blinder than I am. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. <laughs>